Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The whole idea of monogamy is something that has been the norm since the beginning of time. It's simply natural law. The historical definition of monogamy for thousands of years was one person for life. Now it's one person at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of what I would like to call the best show in town, but it's Austin and competition here is very high. So let's say the best show recorded at Stumberg Hall, home of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. The topic that we can't not talk about today is fidelity. And before I introduce you to our wonderful guest, I would like to explain a little further the reason for this choice. So as you may know, may not know, but probably you do. The Austin Institute does not operate in a vacuum. Fortunately, we're not the only institution in the country that cares about the moral formation of some of the best university students and that wishes to contribute with its work and its programs to their complete and true human flourishing. Along with our president and our fellows and senior fellows, there are dozens of institutes and hundreds of our American academics that are currently dedicating their professional lives these goals. And one of them, perhaps the most famous for the broader public, is Professor Robert P. George, a political philosopher and public intellectual who serves as a sixth McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institution at Princeton University. Well, one of the latest ideas, a brilliant idea, of Professor Robbie George was to dedicate this month of June precisely to fidelity. We're discovering together its immense value in our lives. By fidelity in general, we mean commitment, we mean loyalty to one's faith, family, spouse, community, the fidelity to God, keeping his commandments, to our spouses and keeping our words, and fidelity to our country, which somehow is nothing more than an extended version of our home. As said, when dealing with marriage and, and relationships in particular, we mean the virtue, by fidelity, we mean the virtue of keeping our word coupled with the fortitude it sometimes requires. The virtue when married of dominating our instincts, our sudden emotions, desires for pleasures, having in mind that there are things that maybe are more noble and more important to pursue than the immediate satisfaction of these desires. The Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture is clearly very happy to participate in this initiative and in particular to talk about the fidelity that is owed to one's spouse and to one's family under this particular angle. Stable families, we know from the social sciences, are central to human flourishing and of course are central to our mission. They're indispensable for the flourishing of individual and in the flourishing of communities at large. And so to talk about this topic, we decided to invite someone whose expertise focuses precisely around family and around some of these themes, including fidelity. With me today is clinical and consulting psychologist, Dr. William Ballet. Good morning, Bill, and welcome on our show. Good morning, and thank you for having me. I want to thank you very much because I know that your practice and also the fact that you have several children, uh, eight, is that right? Eight? Nine. 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 I always get it wrong. Yeah, you're a very busy man. The summer is coming, so I'm particularly grateful that you make time for us. And I said you're an expert on these issues in particular, the issues that, you know, things that have to do with family and went with fidelity, because this is also in part your main area of work. 
But I think if you, if you want to help me and tell the audience why I introduced you this way and what is in particular that you do mostly in your, in your practice. Well, you know, the simplest way to describe my practice is I'm in the relationship business. And most of my clinical work is marriage and family counseling. Another part of my business is working with family-owned and operated businesses, resolving conflicts over power, money, control, and to try and figure out a way for families to perpetuate the legacy of a business or assets that they have from one generation to the next. Because the requirements of a business, which are objective, are often in conflict with the subjectivity of a family. You know, either one is hard to to manage. A business is difficult and a family is difficult. When you mix them with opposing needs and requirements, it becomes very complex. And so I have this practice of doing a lot of marriage therapy, as well as some individual therapy as well. But my favorite is really trying to sustain marriages and to help perpetuate perhaps the most important thing that our society needs. You you talked about Robert George and, you know, the emphasis on not, not just on fidelity and positive relationships in marriage, but that, you know, the sustenance of marriage and family is at the very core of what makes a country productive and staying together. And you can see in in our culture a lot of disintegration because of, you know, the high rates of divorce and broken families. So let's pretend I know nothing about the topic. (laughs) I have no clue why a stable family is better, right? And let's, let's start from the beginning. Like, why even having... A committed relationship. I mean, why? Why do you? Why are you saying what you're saying based on your clinical experience? Like, why is it a stable family better than changing relationships? Well, you know, research. Let's take research, factual information. Social science research is constantly producing studies and telling us what we have to do to be happier, to have more. But if you look at some of the macro studies that have pulled together all the research that has been done in the social science realm since the beginning, it shows that there are really just two factors that most contribute to maximizing the things that we all want. Better physical and mental health, higher socioeconomic status, healthier, happier relationships, well-adjusted, virtuous, and successful kids, and even you know, something we're obsessed with in our culture, even higher satisfaction with sexual intimacy. The two factors that account for the grand majority of variants are simply getting married and staying married for the rest of your life to the same person and having a faith and practicing. If you do do those two things alone, for better or worse, you are much more likely to have all those things that we want. Yet, That is the very place in which, especially marriage and faithful practice to any religion has deteriorated and is, you know, getting worse and worse. Yeah. And I think, and not to bring you personal stories, but I would be curious to hear what made you, I think I know the answer to this, but like, 
what made you interested in the first place in dealing with issues related to family and relationship? Oh, well, gosh, you know, I first wanted to become a veterinarian. I was pre-vet during undergraduate. And I was doing some work studying with, with an amazing man, an ethologist, the echolocation used by bats and whales. And I encountered some graduate students who were doing some work with him on nonverbal communication between people, and especially in the context of therapy. And what are some of the nonverbal cues that we use to communicate or sometimes that are dissonant with what we use for words that confuses people. And, you know, long story short, you know, I, I experienced very, at a very young age, my, my father passing away, my mother marrying a man who had a lot of problems, addictions and, and gambling problems. So I, I was, you know, the subject of a broken family when she finally divorced him. You know, I, I, I was pretty much on my own at age 16. I I yearned for what it was that, you know, other people seemed to have. I was, you know, I was raised in New York and amongst a lot of Italian, Jewish and Irish families who were very close with each other. And, and I yearned for that. So, you know, I ended up switching over to psychology as an undergraduate, became very interested in relationships both, you know, in, in family life and made it my, my intent was to take the, if you will, trauma or difficulties that I experienced and to use them to, to have a better life. And so my goal was to get married, have a family, stay married forever, hopefully not die at an early age. And so far I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, no, yeah, I, th- yeah, I know for sure you did a great job. Also, for those who are more careful, you know, that looked at your last name, know that Marie Ballette, amazing mother and music musician, was on our show too. She also was here in Austin, our guest. Uh, you're you're a very fruitful family in that regard. But the reason I've asked this is that, of course, I have this in common with you. And I think that there is something to be said about the passion, the passion about dealing with family and fighting for healthy family that is shared by people who did not have that fortune. And the reason I would like to bring this up, because I see that how it animates a lot of the scholars we work with, a lot of the researchers, is precisely to make sure that anything traumatic that they've experienced doesn't, you know, does, doesn't, doesn't happen again, doesn't happen to others. The reason I want to bring it up is that I think that many times the social science numbers do not speak to people who had normal, let's say, quote unquote, nor- nobody has a perfect childhood, right? Like there's, But people coming from stable families, they do not see, I think, many times the blessing that this was or like how this has helped them, you know, develop the way human beings are supposed to develop just biologically, right? And, and without the need of having a faith involved in thinking what is appropriate and what is not, like having the two figures and having... So I think that it's interesting to underline the fact that people defending the natural family are people that did not have it because it says something that I would like for our audience to keep in mind whenever they're thinking, oh, come on, my kids are old. Even if I get a divorce now, you know, I can't do it. There's abundance of evidence that that's not the case and there are abundance of lives that would testify you the opposite. So that's sad, which I think is an important, you know, let's say another, a further intro to to the topics that we're trying to address. 
What I would like to ask you, you know, based on your experience dealing with families, like, first of all, why do spouses cheat? Like, where, where does this infidelity, the desire, you know, to get out of the commitment come from? And maybe another question would be, can it be detected, you know, prior to the marriage? Like, can, can we, you know, understand that maybe the guy that one is engaged with is probably not going to be faithful? Well, you know, when we make a promise, we, we all want to feel love. And, you know, one of the things that is most damaging when we enter into a relationship where we agree to have exclusivity in a relationship, it is the most hurtful thing, perhaps, that someone can do is to break that promise, you know. There are broken promises and transgressions uh, in relationships that can be easily forgiven. But when we promise to love someone exclusively, it is traumatic. And when you ask the question, why do people cheat? You know, what, what, what leads to that? Well, you know, we're fallen human beings. And one of the things that often happens in, in relationships, I often say to people, have you ever had a roommate? Oh, yeah, I've had a roommate. How long does it take before you want to kill them? You know, um, because we're human beings and we're going to get irritated with somebody else's habits. And when we commit to someone for life, you know, we we try to stay with what we promise to do. It becomes difficult. And like when I'm seeing young couples and I do a lot of marriage preparation and they're engaged and they're living together and they're being intimate with each other. And, and I ask them to, uh, for a period of time, even for a few months before they get married to, to refrain and move out. And they say, Oh, why, you know, we're going to get married. It's going to be fine. And I tell them, well, you know, you're going to have fights and you're going to have arguments. And do you want to know that you trust the other person to be chaste and exclusive? And they say, well, of course, and I say, well, you know, you're going to have a fight and perhaps one of you is going to go out of town and have a few drinks with, you know, the conference they're attending. And and one thing leads to another. You had an argument before you left and this person is nice to you and and then you're more tempted. So so what I want to do is is suggest to you that you practice this. First of all, research tells us that Marriage is going to be much more inclined to last uh, for a lifetime if you don't live with each other and don't have sex with each other before marriage. But why don't you test it out for a few months? You know, otherwise you're not going to be confident that the other person can control themselves, <laughs> have some self-control. Infidelity has been around since the beginning of time. You know, the whole idea of monogamy is something that has been the norm since the beginning of time. It's simply natural law. The historical definition of monogamy for thousands of years was one person for life. Now it's one person at a time. And maybe what what has happened is, you know, basically we have a culture in which there is nothing that reinforces the incentive that people will have. There's no more shame for getting divorced. There's no more shame for, you know, having multiple partners. 
before or after marriage in many cases. And when when you're surrounded by when kids are growing up and learning that, you know, hooking up and sex is okay to have and that there's no loyalty even in dating, you know, we're boiling the frog <laughs> to the point where it, it, there's just no incentive for us in our society to remain chaste. And it's one of the most tempting things when we get with a member of the opposite gender and we get a little bit too close to them, the inclination to become physical is always going to be there. And there's just no incentive. When we look at what has happened, you know, in the studies that are being done with infidelity, family studies, I think it's IFS, the Institute for Family Studies, show that men are more likely to cheat 20% in marriage. 13% of women reporting also having sex with someone other than their spouse while they're married. The interesting thing is, is that uh, for those married between 18 and 29 years old, women are actually slightly more likely to cheat than men. However, the gender gap reverses 30 to 34 years of age, and it widens with age, with infidelity for both men and women increasing, especially during middle age. And as couples grow older, infidelity among men trends up and eventually down for women, with 20% of men still cheating and only 6% of women cheating when they're over 80 years old. 80 years old. <laughs> A person's race, political identity, family background, religious activity are related to whether or not they cheat. Overall, Democrats, Adults who didn't grow up in intact families and those who rarely or never attend religious services are more likely than others to cheat. It's interesting to note that religious service attendance is the one factor that shows the most consistent significance in predicting both men and women odds of infidelity. You know, that's where we hear about the importance of infidelity, its consequences. And if you may, philosophically speaking, too, it's not only where you hear about it, but also the idea that God is an authority over you. The family is an authority over you. Your body is an authority over you. Asks you for some obedience of some sort, right? So it, I don't think that in that, in that front is surprising that someone who submits himself to the idea that there is a bigger law, right, would also accept the laws of marriage and, and the laws of, of commitment. You brought up something I think very interesting about there is no shame. So I, here I have a couple of questions that, because I, you know, I also come from a different culture where comedies are about cheating and then the people come together, go back together. And instead, you know, when I look at American comedy, there is never cheating, but there is the third marriage or the fourth marriage as if, you know, like, so two different reactions to extramarital affairs, right? So in one culture considered, okay, it's just a one night thing and it's not a problem and the couple can stay together. And the other one say, okay, no, it must mean, you know, the love is over and there's a new love and a new relationship. But when you use the word shame, so it's not something you laugh about, but it's something, would you argue that in the past there was shame for the man that would betray his wife instead of, and, and, and how is it today? What does this shame look like? If, if anything, like, well, to relate to what you were saying about different cultures and, you know, coming from Italy and Spain, where I spent some time, it's kind of a quiet 
statement that, uh, of course, man is going to have another lover. And in a more, America was born out of a more puritanical, you would never do that sort of thing. But in both cultures, you know, it's not spoken about. In other words, with your spouse, you you know, say for an Italian family and, and the man is cheating on his wife or has a lover, they, you know, he's not going to have a conversation with his wife. Of course, I have, you know, a lover. So there's there's shame in both places. It's looked down upon. And that was important, at least in the United States, you know, as I guess, you know, before the sexual revolution that we had in the 60s, getting divorced, having an affair was considered a shameful thing to do, a weak thing to do. Weak. Uh, Can we bring back the word weak? That you're not cooler because you had three lovers. You're just like a weaker person that cannot control his own passions. And like, should we adopt it again in our vocabulary? Well, you know, uh, you make an interesting point. Weakness. You know, I I think I mentioned to you before that I do a number of talks on pornography addiction. And I've done it for the past probably eight or 10 years on a regular basis. And I changed the title of my pornography addiction talk to that of wired for struggle, because I believe that we're all born to take on the challenges of living and loving. Yet lately, our resolve has been weakened by an affluent and pleasure-seeking attitude, which make us unfocused and insecure. And I see so many clients and couples who are apathetic. They're barely interested in their own lives. And they want an easy fix. Consumer culture is full of easy fixes, but they only make us more unhappy because we were made for noble lives that require hard work and that are marked by sacrificial love, sacrifice and and perseverance. And the overconsumption and ease of using electronics to do so many things that makes life easier and seemingly more entertaining is one example of the activity that weakens us and contributes to our inability to form healthy relationships. You know, I I believe that we are now living in a largely effeminate culture. Mm -hmm. I have to be careful about using that term because we sometimes confuse the term effeminate with, you know, not being feminine. But effeminacy, properly defined, is the reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. St. Thomas Aquinas refers to being effeminate as when we're being soft. And he uses the analogy of a rotting wood door that's easily broken through. And men who are much more prone to suffer from porn addiction, for example, do so in part because of the loss of their willingness to persevere in the context of struggle. So when one is weak or effeminate, bad influences, or our temptations can take over our ability to do things with verve and intention to overcome, you know, well, this is easy. And, and, And it's easy now, not only because we're not in shame if we do something like this, it's accepted, yeah, well, everybody does that. Or, you know, I've been divorced two or three times and it's normal and there's no shame attached to it. And so weakness and shame 
you know, combine the lack of shame and the lack of, you know, uh, a call to being strong and to persevere. And we're surrounded by it. Yeah. Um, and in this, I would say you're, you're very right in, in underlying that effeminacy is not being feminine, because I would argue that if we interpret effeminacy in the way you described it and with St. Thomas and this fleeing from hardship, then I would attribute it in a pejorative way also to women that are willing to take on the hardships that are typical of a man's life, but that are absolutely unwilling to take on the ones that are related to motherhood, right? Like, so the, the labors of like the, the pains of giving birth, the pains of being a mother, those are the ones that women do not seem willing to take on. Like the, 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 these, those are pains that they're trying to flee from. So I, I think that as a general term for a culture, which we may also... It's not just pain, it's, it's also inconvenience. You know, I won't be able to live my life the way I did before if I have children, because they're going to take away from, you know, we have this focus on selfism now. And I ought to be able to do what I want and live my life the way I want. And children are, you know, an inconvenience to my happiness. And yet we have the highest rates of depression and anxiety we've ever seen before. And it's because I believe that when we actually face up to the difficulties in life, when we embrace struggle, that we build a sense of meaning in our life. But we don't have any meaning anymore. You know, people come to my office and they say, Dr. Bullett, I just want to be happy. And I say, well, what's going to make you happy? Well, you know, if I had a spouse that was nicer to me, if I had a boss that was better, if I made more money, if I had better sex, and, and I tell them, I can't help you. <laughs> because if I help you to accomplish any of those things, which is pretty easy to do if you put your mind to it. You can take any one of those things and get more. You're always going to yearn for a little bit more. You're never going to be satisfied. But if you learn to be competent with difficulty, then you are going to, number one, have a greater sense of meaning and self-confidence. And two, you're going to be more competent for being able to deal with the struggle that's ahead because it's inevitable. Life is hard. You don't have to be religious to accept that life is difficult. Difficult. Yeah, in different ways for everyone. This is, you've met our new um, director of curriculum, Maria Jose Ruiz, when you came to visit and we were discussing these things right before, right before this recording with you. And there is something about related to the self and it's the centrality of the self that seems to be because sometimes, you know, the, the term Western culture is used sadly in a pejorative way today. And I don't think the problem is Western culture at all, but is this trend of focusing on the self and like the self as the ruler and the shaper of one's life. And of course, we think that if we follow what we desire in the moment, we're going to be happier. But how can we know, right? Why, why not listening to tradition, history, community, assuming with this arrogance that we know better? Right. Like that from our little perspective, we already know better. Anyway, instead of going, you know, and keep chatting like about the things that just come to mind, we, we could go on talking for hours. But what I wanted to ask you about regarding infidelity, fidelity and infidelity is what do people mean by the term emotional infidelity? And since you've mentioned pornography, other topic that, you know, I'd love to discuss with you for 
hours. What's the relation of emotional infidelity or is it to total infidelity, the, the one provided by online pornography? Well, you know, if you talk to the spouse of somebody who is addicted to pornography, for example, the person using the pornography often becomes so engrossed in it and so used to it that to them it's nothing more than, you know, looking at an image and what's the big deal? It's not another person. Uh, that's the ultimate way in which another person feels, especially women who have men who are their husbands who are addicted to porn. It's it's virtually the same for them as them having a you know an affair with a with a real person. And this is borne out in I have many many cases where people come in and complain. Well, he's having an emotional affair. They only know the surface of it. And uh, perhaps the man is texting back and forth, you know, uh, things to someone that is inappropriate. But really, even conversation and friendship with another person of the opposite gender in marriage is okay. But intimacy has to be reserved for one's spouse. You know, scripture tells us that when we dwell, you know, or look impurely at another with lust. It's the same as acting out. And it really is, again, natural law. The beauty of, of the Christian faith is that it follows natural law. And when one engages intimately in any way outside the covenant of marriage, even without physical contact, trust is broken because it's reserved for that other person. And Aside from that, once someone goes down that path, it's very likely that it's going to get much deeper and they're going to engage in things that, you know, damage the bond of a promise of fidelity. And so it, it, it's simply something that, you know, we have to avoid. And again, it starts with having that self-control, having that shame of being too close to another person that should be shared only with one's spouse or with the person we promise. Yeah. But when you say you, I know you, you see a lot of people and, and you see men that, you know, I like when you say you don't even ask if they use pornography, but how much. Right. And I think that's the appropriate question. I completely like when you told me that, yeah, it sounds totally right. But do men that are in committed relationship, you know, pr where they promised something feel like they are betraying? Is that something that comes up or is, is there a detachment? Like, do they not see that even though it's not physical intimacy, there is a betrayal? I, I would have to say that some do know that it's just like a betrayal, but most do not. Most men will learn how to masturbate during adolescence, you know, when they go through puberty. And it's something that in years that have gone by is something that, you know, they, they know that it's, it's wrong somehow. And even if they're not, you know, people of faith in the family, it's, it's frowned upon to have this fantasy life within oneself and that it belongs giving oneself to another. And the problem with pornography is, is that it feeds a very, very neurological system 
that has, you know, we 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 are we're just beginning to realize how incredibly damaging it is, not to just marriage, but to productivity and to everything that's happening in our culture. And a lot of men just become addicted to it and they don't think there's anything wrong with it. You know, I'm just looking at images, but they become increasingly distant. We have children who are watching this, young folks who are now not learning how to have any kind of relationship with another human being. Take, for example, say a a young, shy child who is made fun of at school. He's not very popular for whatever reason. He's not athletically inclined or he's not as attractive or as tall as other boys. And in years gone by, he would have to struggle through that. And now he can revert to sitting behind a screen and gaining popularity by how well he plays a game or how 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 much he can convey something uh, in written word to be funny. And they miss out on, you know, I'm going off in the weeds here, but the bottom line in answer to your question is most men do not even realize that this is something really wrong because their brain is telling them you should do more of it. They've become addicted. And, and there could be also something that, you know, this fact that we are unaware, it sounds like all the big mistakes we make in life start with a little lie. We don't really know we're making a mistake. There's this illusion that, oh, come on, I'm only having a drink with this friend, right? Yep. Oh, come on, you know, she's a friend from college. Okay, right. then why didn't she talk? So that said, how do we deal with, we're in a, let's say we're in a committed relationship where we're married or we're about to, and there are either thoughts of infidelity or there has been infidelity. As a clinical psychologist in treating, is, what's the best way to deal with that? Should the couple talk about it? Should there be a personal, you know, understanding of what what is leading me out of this? I guess that, you know, this is something I deal with a lot. And broadly speaking, Mariana, we, we're living in a culture that focuses too, too heavily on negativity and selfism. And a lot of the people in my profession teach people to see things as negative, to have a lack of hope, um, and uh, to blame others for their misfortune and their unhappiness with little hope for change. Infidelity in marriage is, in my mind, often more of a symptom of underlying problems in a relationship that relate to becoming more distant from each other with each focusing on what they're not getting from the other and developing a negative attitude. We no longer focus in our culture in general on beauty. (laughs) You know, we're negative all the time. We have a lack of hope. And when I'm working with couples, I tell them I can't treat the problem without a proper diagnosis. And I ask them to look at, and of course we have to deal with the infidelity if there is one. And The most important thing is whoever has transgressed in that arena needs to be honest up front, you know, and to just lay it out. And otherwise, you're going to have a person who's trying to pull out. How often did it happen? Did you enjoy that person more than me? And that's important. 
But what I ultimately have to get to, what I have to get to with that couple is, although there is absolutely no legitimate excuse for an infidelity, when you make a promise, it's a promise. But I also ask the other person, the victim, if you will, whoever's been cheated on, to genuinely take a look at what they can do differently and better in the relationship and to strive to forgive. Because, again, instead of looking at it negatively, I sometimes see, you know, infidelity as a crisis that gives us an opportunity. It's a wake up call. You've got something wrong here in the way you're going about how you relate to each other. And to focus now on discovering how to build a more open, faithful, and and to have a, a, you know, a discussion about what are we doing this for? If you take the average couple, both of them work, they have 1.2 kids, they both have, you know, BMWs, and they have personal trainers, and the whole idea of intimacy because of contraception and everything else, it's just easy and they have no meaning in their life and they're going to fall out of love or one has an affair and then they just immediately throw it away because it's easy. And so, you know, I like to look at it from a positive perspective and that is, this is an opportunity rather than throwing it away. Take a look at what was good about the relationship, why you came together. What is still good in the other person in spite of the fact that they've made mistakes? And forgiveness is hard. It's very, very difficult. But, you know, to me, that's the key. Showing forgiveness by never conveying negative comments about your spouse if you get divorced, right? You know, because some people get divorced and then they badmouth their spouse, kids. Very rarely does divorce outweigh the options of remaining married. There are exceptions. Yeah, know. abuse and violence and yes, sure. And uh, But the, the, the key to forgiveness is to realize that it's a supernatural uh, thing. You, you know, we're not capable of humans of completely forgiving and forgetting. It's very difficult and it takes time. Having a po- positive outlook, really believing that you can ultimately forgive this person and fall back in love in the way in which you started. Again, it's that struggle. We can do it. We can overcome it. But we have to rely on somebody higher than us to forgive and ask for the grace for it, for us to be able to see this other person as God sees us. You know, God doesn't... I, I would also argue, though, that if the grace is not there, one seriously just needs to look at the social sciences and at the data and all the books that have been written on the topic. And now the second, the third, the fourth are not better. Like there are, they come with a series of other complications in one's life. They're probably forgiveness, no matter how hard, is still the, the, the best option for, this, for the same person that, that does it. Now, what I would like to ask you, so this coming year, we are we really want to have a group where we're going to discuss divorce and the consequence on children, not only for the adult children, but also for parents who are navigating divorce and also for 
people coming from intact families to understand, as I was saying before, the blessings that they have and understand their friends and the different way in which they think. But what I would like to ask you is, how should a family deal with infidelity and maybe even forgiveness when children are unfortunately aware? Well, you know, it depends on how old they are and it depends on how aware they are. I think it's important that children in general should not be involved. And, you know, if a couple is trying to rebuild their relationship and forgive each other, the best thing they can do for their kids is to show them that they were able to do it and that they are in a stable, you know, uh, exclusive relationship again. Because, you know, you can tell kids what to do and what not to do until uh, you're blue in the face, but they're going to mostly follow what you do. And if they see a couple, their parents going through some kind of trauma, like an infidelity, and that they work through it, and they forgive each other, and that they can repair it, they will learn what? When they fail, to pick themselves back up and do it. And I don't think there's a need for, and it's really unhealthy, I think, to really involve kids in, you know, really knowing much about the details. Even in the case of divorce, as I, as I alluded to earlier, when, when I'm coaching people who are divorced, the best thing that you can do for your kids is to tell them that their father or their mother is a child of God and uh, they made some mistakes and I made some mistakes, but to never badmouth them and to show, you know, even a single parent, it's not ideal, but they can raise strong and virtuous children by being positive and admitting their mistakes but not in detail. The kids don't need to hear the details. They don't need to be involved. Yeah. And I think this, I don't know if you agree, but I think this has been, you know, the seventies, the eighties, this idea that children needed to be part of the decision-making that they're already adults that they need to hear. I think that disasters have been made following that, that belief, right. Instead of think realizing that they need a skeleton before they can live life, right? And then the role of parents is to make sure that they're that they're adult enough to be ready to receive certain information and not that they can't be shaped by certain information. Well the kid kids, I mean even adult uh our adult kids don't want to hear the details about our parents when <laughs> mistakes. They need to know that their their parents are strong, virtuous, and took whatever mistakes that they made that they know vaguely were there. And, you know, I have one couple that I've been working with for many years. The kids are are constantly telling them, we don't want to hear about your problems anymore. <laughs> you know, because they, they both go to the kids and complain. The kids don't want to hear that. You know, it it saddens them. It depresses them. They want to know that they're going to be able to overcome those sorts of things. And so our work, you know, that's when we get married, our first priority is our spouse above work, above kids. And if we do that, you know, people ask me, gosh, Bill, you have some pretty healthy kids, pretty well adjusted and, you know, aspiring to do great things with their careers and getting married and wanting to have children. And and they seem well adjusted. 
what what did you do? And I tell him, I loved Marie. I put her first. That's what parents need to do mostly for their kids is love their spouse. Wow. Yeah, no, you're, wow. Yes, you're a great example, Bill, in what you say and what you did. I wanted to close with a question. Let's see if we're going to agree on this one. Can there be fidelity on a couple without charity? Well, you know, it depends on your definition of charity. Charity means love, right? Yeah. What is love is sacrificial. It is giving oneself to another. And when you ask the question, can there be fidelity? What was it? Can there be fidelity without, without charity? The the answer is no. You know, I mean, because the definition of charity is sacrificial love. Sacrificing my needs for yours. There can't be fidelity if one is not sacrificing for the other person. Even, you know, when you're talking about small matters, my wife and I, Marie and I, struggle with a lot of small things. We have different temperaments. And uh, we've gotten much better at being able to deal with each other. But, you know, here's my... You know, uh, people often, uh, I'll ask people, what's the purpose of marriage? Well, you know, they'll say to get the person to heaven or to have companionship or for economies of scale or, you know, they give you all kinds of reasons. And I tell them, yes, but, you know, after doing this work for over 40 years now, I'm convinced that marriage is a process of erosion. We're all born with temperaments, strengths, and our strengths are always our weakness, you know. And for example, you take somebody who is very organized and very quiet, and they're interested in marrying. Their, we're often attracted to our opposite, somebody else who's different from us, somebody who's talkative and sort of free-spirited, not very organized, right? And once they get married, those are the very things that become points of contention, you know, angry at each other. And oftentimes, again, because there's no shame, because there's, you know, you just throw it away. You just get divorced instead of working through it. But if you stay with it, what happens is you change. Now, you know, the person who is organized and the person who is introverted is not going to become a different person but they learn to take the edge off. They become more well-rounded. And the other person also does so. Have you ever seen a couple in their 90s, 80s or 90s, they've been married for 60 years? Do they look like each other? They look like each other. They, they, they shrink down and they look like one unit. And if one dies, the other one mm -hmm. typically will die shortly thereafter because they can't imagine life without the other. They have become so like one another. Yet, if they're alive and they're walking down the street together or rolling in their wheelchairs, they're still looking over and growling at the other <laughs> because of differences. Yeah. And, you know, so what the answer to your question is absolutely not. Charity and love, which is a process of giving oneself to the other, sacrificing in matters of personal preference remaining chaste and true to the other person is essential through charity. Yeah. And I think then that we agree 
you already mentioned, you know, one one thing that I wanted to ask you, but you already mentioned like what's what's the main problem of couples today, and I think you've answered already by saying that is our constant focus on the self, right? And so this this veneration of ourself and our and our identity as individual. Maybe one thing to close this and to also invite you, you know, if and whenever you will have some time to maybe talk to us again, particularly on the issue of pornography, which we hope to address a lot more next year, including with the students live, you know, having some some groups dealing more with the topic. But the one thing that I wanted to ask you is, okay, not everyone can go to therapy and probably there is a risk also of over pathologizing things that are just cultural behaviors and habits. But like, what could be some solutions to this self-centered attitude, including your relationship that we could just start, you know, helping each other, doing something different? Like what, what are things, practical things that you see as solutions, things that could be done? Well, it's interesting that you ask that question because I think that one of the things that I often do with people and so many people come to me, whether it's marriage or individual, and they're, they're not happy. They're, they're feeling depressed. They don't have a sense of meaning in their lives. And they seem to have everything, you know, and they have a, a good job and, and they have friends and, and they do things. And I think one of the things that has been lost and it's related to selfism. Everybody is constantly trying to fill themselves with an attachment to the things of this world, to wealth and things and comfort and ease. And what I often ask people to do is to do something for somebody else. You know, whether it's doing something kind for someone, helping and older person who you see struggling taking the garbage can out to the, the curb, doing some volunteer work. What we've lost in our culture, and I think brings immense happiness to people, and, and we learn to be more faithful to other people and to look at their need. Their needs is more important than our own and to get out of this selfism that doesn't satisfy is to do something for others. And for couples, I tell them, what do you do together that is larger than yourselves? Aside from raising the kids and working your job, you know, my wife and I probably had the most satisfaction from running a parenting group. You know, how do we raise virtuous children in an unvirtuous world? And we met once a month with a bunch of couples and had wine and cheese and, and talked about how do you do this? It was very satisfying for us and helpful to us to learn from others how they do it, but to do something bigger than yourself. And we live in a time when we are imploding on ourselves and on the things we have. I like this expression a lot. We're imploding on ourselves. And, and doing something for others. Thank you. I do think that, I mean... I cannot agree more with you all the time, but like this, the idea that as, you know, non people that are outside of a relationship, like just dying to yourself somehow, regardless, right. And do, do something that it's, it's not beneficial to you in any way. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to see it. It doesn't have any, doesn't give credit if we're thinking about students, but there is a credit. But I think that athletes often get that message, you know, because they know that to reach the things they want, they need to go through sacrifices that they do not understand as they're doing it. But then, you know, 10 years later, they get where they want to be. 
and probably we've not been trained to this long-term training of ourselves or, you know, what, what, you know, what was virtue in the past and how people were educated in virtue. And also this thing about couples to do something better than yourself. So it's not just the date night for couples, right? You're making time for your spouse, but is what are you do building out besides children, which oftentimes, as you mentioned before, are not even there, are not even part of the picture, which is already, I mean, to have a child is already something bigger than yourself. So already a couple that decides not to, it's probably already not a great signal of being going beyond yourself. I want to thank you, Bill, for your expertise, your time, what you did with Marie, with not only for your nine kids, but also for community at large with these parenting groups. And and I really hope that you will accept your invitation and come again on our show sometime. Congratulations also on your, you know, your kids and their I know that one of them just became a doctor in psychology as well. And so, you know, it's where he's gonna continue helping others as you did. So thank thank you very much again for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for all that you do and with the Austin Institute who are doing great things to help us all to learn and to discuss and and come up with better ideas how to live virtuously. Also for watching over my second son, Luke, down there, who I know the Austin Institute has very been very instrumental to him. I'm grateful to hear. Yeah, there's a lot of, he's one of our young professionals here. There's a great group of young professionals. And so to close about, you know, that we, as the, the Austin Institute will try to remain faithful to its mission, which is that of supporting, promoting the family, healthy family, stable marriages as the most fundamental unity of society and what we all need to remain sane and to flourish. Thank you again, Bill. Okay, thank you. Take care. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.